Well, it's good to see you. My name's Luke. I'm one of the pastors here, uh, one of the ministers here at the church. Um, and uh, our lead minister is, is uh, away for a few weeks uh, over in uh, North Wales. So I'll, I'll be speaking the next three weeks, and then I think Ian Fenton after that to finish out our, uh, our summer series. But a couple things as we start here, just, just uh, to help you follow along. There's a little worship program, and in that worship program there is some notes that will help guide you uh, through the talk. It should kind of corroborate, at least I hope it corroborates, with, with my PowerPoint slide. And the other thing is, uh, keep, your, keep your Bible open to the passage we just read, because I'll constantly be referring to that uh, passage as, as, we, uh, as we give the talk today. And, and I think you'll find it a lot easier to follow along, and I think you'll find the talk a lot more interesting if you are reading along with me as I point uh, to various texts. As we, we didn't say this this week, but the, the, um, the title of this series is, I love that verse, now, now what does it mean? Uh, we, we've picked about seven or eight of the, uh, or six or seven of the most popular uh, verses in the Bible, uh, and that we actually have some data behind that because there's a, a website that publishes the most searched Bible verses around the globe, and this is one of them. Uh, it's a popular verse, and so we've, we've tried to make uh, uh, just a short sermon series about these, these, great, these great passages of Scripture, but what do they mean in their context? What do they mean for us? So although we'll be talking about all the verses we just read, we'll be focusing specifically on chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. For many people, those are cherished words. Those are, those are words that you have learned, perhaps, from a young age, and you have repeated those words and memorized those words. How could we ever know and live with the God of the universe? Jesus. But there are others, perhaps even in this room tonight, that find these words from the lips of Jesus disturbing. Isn't Jesus inclusive? I mean, Jesus is the one who reaches out to outcasts. He loves the marginalized, you know, those who are kicked to the curb by society. He has compassion on the foreigner and the refugee. And, and, I mean, when we're considering Jesus, his harshest words are for those traditionalist Jews who are trying to keep people out of the kingdom. Jesus, in many ways, is a poster boy for inclusivism. So it's no surprise that many are could say embarrassed by Jesus's words here in John 14 6 how can someone who seems so inclusive say some say something so frustratingly exclusive about finding God well this text has a kind of a strange outline or this sorry this talk is somewhat of a strange outline and I want to just start by asking this question is Jesus and therefore Christianity, narrow and arrogant. Is Jesus, and therefore Christianity, narrow and arrogant? I find that there are usually two problems people have with the exclusivity of Jesus. Now, when I say that, I'm going to use this word all the time, the exclusivity of Jesus. I just simply mean the fact that Jesus says, I'm it. I'm the way to God. If you want to get to God, it's through me, period. That's what I mean when I'm saying the exclusivity of Jesus. And people, I think, have two problems with that generally. First, there's the, there's the whole emotional problem. How can you say 
that the only way to commune with the God of the universe, the only way to reach heaven, the only way to avoid judgment is through one God, Jesus. What about all those decent people in the world? You know, who are minding their own business and generally, yeah, nice people, and they haven't given Jesus a second thought. What about them? It's the emotional problem. Then there's, the, there's a lot of people that have a moral problem with this teaching. Exclusive religious claims create conflict, create wars. You know, you can imagine someone saying, any religion that says, this is the truth, we have it, you don't, that's just going to lead to division. That's just going to lead to more conflict. That's going to lead to superiority complexes. And in some ways, that's true. But I want to ask you a question. What does the world suggest we do with this issue in religion? What does the world suggest we do with it? Some people right in the world would like to obliterate religion, wouldn't they? The problem is religion. If we can just get rid of religion, most of the problems in the world will be fixed. But honestly, most people don't do that. That wouldn't be very tolerant after it all. The public opinion on religion is not necessarily that it needs to be destroyed, but that it needs to remain private in your home and don't let it out the door. If you want to believe in fairy godmother, you can do that as long as you keep it to yourself. The larger culture says, okay, we can put up with religion. In fact, we can celebrate religion as long as we agree on two things. We must agree first that all religions equally lead to God. That all religious claims are equally valid, that they're all equally true. We must agree on that. Because if we don't agree on that, then you might be thinking you have the exclusive truth and you might be trying to get other people to come on board with you and that might create division and conflict. And second, the larger culture says we must agree to keep our religious views private and out of public life. You know, you can have all the personal values and religious values you want, but don't bring your religious values into public life where they're not shared. Okay, let's unpack those for a few seconds, the logic behind each one of those. On the surface, I, I mean, I think I've, on the surface, it sounds quite open and tolerant to say, we agree that all religious claims are equally lead to God. But that is, in fact, I think, quite a restrictive claim. First of all, it's not provable. You know, no, no one can prove that all religions lead to God. It's not something you test in a scientific lab. It's certainly not self-evident. If you go outside of the West, almost no one believes that all religions lead to God. So it's quite a Western thought, not a global thought. In our society's effort to make all religions and all religious and spiritual truths relative, what they're actually doing is imposing their exclusive belief. What's their exclusive belief? It's that certainly all religious truths are equally valid. They're imposing that on everyone else, you see. Because all religious views are valid, except for the view that there could only be one way to God. So the problem you see here is that actually, the people who are, would say, we just need to be tolerant of everyone, are actually the same people that are pushing an exclusive truth on you. But what about keeping religious views out of public life? Is that really possible? A guy named Tim Keller points out that you might be able to keep your religious views, your spiritual views, 
out of public life. If by religion is simply, you just simply mean a few distinctive set of beliefs that are kind of disjuncted from everything else in life. Or if you view religion as just showing up to some weekly meeting. But that's not what religion is in the full sense. No, actually religion is, is at least true religion, is, a, is the, a full set of all the most important questions in life, the biggest questions of life. Why are we here? Where are we going? What is right and what is wrong? What is just and what is unjust? What's, what's really wrong with humanity? What, what do we need to fix? Those answers are religious answers, whether you're an atheist, an, a Muslim, a Hindu, a Buddhist, or a Christian. Everyone, when they talk about human values and when they talk about morals, they are making religious claims. They are making exclusive claims, no matter who they are or what religion or non-religion they find themselves in. Why are they making religious claims? Because they come down to the core assumptions about what you think about who is God, if there is one, what's the universe like, and what are we like as humans? Okay, what I want you to see from this is that the, exclusive, uh, the exclusiveness of Jesus Christ, that Jesus claims to be the only way to God, shouldn't actually bother us because we all make exclusive claims. Every time we make a moral judgment, Every time we say this is right, we're saying this is wrong. We're being exclusive. Even when someone says all religions must be equally valid, they're being exclusive. Tim Keller points out the problem isn't exclusivity. We're all exclusive in some way. And the problem, and listen carefully, is when exclusive beliefs lead people to be prejudiced and proud. But the gospel is an exclusive truth that should humble us. Isn't that precisely what the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ is? When Jesus says, I am the way, he's not saying, all you who are smart enough or morally sophisticated enough to figure out the path to God are going to get saved. Absolutely not. When Jesus says, I am the way, he's saying, when you recognize that you can't find God on your own strength, you're going to find God. When you recognize that you're not moral enough to earn God's favor, you'll have God's favor. When you understand that you're too broken to save yourself, that's when God will save you. That's an exclusive truth that humbles us because we're not good enough. It's a gracious truth that makes us gracious. It's a loving truth that makes us loving. Okay, that sounds great, right? But Luke, we haven't really explored John 14, 6 yet. And we need to do that in order to see who this Jesus is who claims to be the only Savior. John 13, 31 through 14, 6, the only Savior who can bring you to God. Okay, so where are we? We're just popping into the middle of this book from, uh, from the... Uh, the Apostle John, the first chunk of John's gospel, the first 12 chapters, it's this highlight reel of Jesus' ministry. 
all these miracles and signs he's doing. And then in chapter 13, the chapter before where we're at today, the story slows way down because it focuses on the last few days of Jesus' life. And in chapter 13, Jesus and his disciples are eating this meal together, okay? Christians are often call this meal the Last Supper. This was indeed the final meal Jesus would have with his disciples before he goes to his death. So this is an important moment in Jesus' life. It's his last meal with his disciples before he's going to the crucifixion. And near the end of the meal, right before verse 31, Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, leaves the room. And of course, we know he's going to leave in order to betray Jesus. But now that Judas has left in these final moments with his disciples, he, he, Jesus wants to tell them a message. Now, the disciples at this point, they have no idea what's going to unfold in Jesus' life over the next 24 hours. We know it. The Apostle John, as he's writing, knows it. But the disciples at this point do not know it. You can read what Jesus says to them in verse 33, chapter 13. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. Well, the disciples are obviously going to be distressed by this news. Okay, this Jesus movement that they've just joined has been just starting to gain some steam. And at the same time, they're beginning to be aware that they're getting some serious opposition. They know that some of these religious leaders want to kill Jesus and probably his followers as well. So you can imagine their thinking when Jesus tells them he's about to leave. What? You're leaving us now? Good old bold Peter speaks up in verse 36. Lord, where are you going? Peter's thinking, fine, that's fine. Wherever you're going, we'll just go with you. Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay my life down for you. You know, Peter doesn't understand that the only way for him to go where Jesus is going is, in fact, for Jesus to lay down his life for Peter. So in verse 38, Jesus responds to Peter. Are you going to lay down your life for me? It's, that's, that's a rhetorical question. He, he knows Peter's not going to lay down his life for him at this point. No, my friend, Peter, Jesus is saying, you've got it all, all wrong. In fact, you're not even going to risk your life for me. Because when the pressure caves in, you're going to deny me, Peter. You're going to disown me, Peter. That must have been a humiliating, crushing blow for Peter to hear in front of all his mates. Peter, you're not going to die for me. You're going to deny me. And at the conclusion of chapter 13, you can almost feel the anxiety and the distress and perhaps the uncertainty of the disciples in this room. On the one hand, Peter just received this ominous prediction that his faith is going to shatter under pressure. And I, I think the disciples would have been thinking, will that be me too? Judas has now betrayed him. Peter's going to disown him. What's going to happen to me? And on the other hand, they've got to be just distressed that Jesus is soon going to depart from them. Jesus was their leader, their king, the hope that God would bring his kingdom. And now, is it all going to just evaporate? But in chapter 14, Jesus 
comforts them in their distress. Really, you you don't even need a chapter break here because it's just one continuous narrative. Verse 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. He's saying it's going to be okay. And how how is it going to be okay? You need to trust God and you need to trust also in me. If you trust me, it's going to be okay. And verse 2 tells why it's going to be okay. Jesus says, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? And if I prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you, may also, that you also may be where I am. Jesus is leaving them not to abandon them, but to prepare a place for them. He's leaving to secure a place for them in the presence of God. You know, the place that we call heaven is what Jesus calls here, or Jesus calls the Father's home. It's a beautiful picture of heaven. It's, it's, just, it's just God's home, and it's Christ's home. And Jesus is leaving his disciples in, the, in order to make it our home. For the follower of Je- Jesus, heaven is your true home. It is the place where you will be loved to the end, never abandoned, always welcomed, Christians find comfort here. Jesus Jesus is very clear that in in the current world order, you'll never find your home here. Jesus makes it very clear, they hated me and they're going to hate you. So don't be surprised when, Christian, you feel marginalized or you feel unwelcomed. You feel not at home in this world. Peter, in fact, calls Christians sojourners and strangers in this world refugees in this world. Don't lose faith or confidence in Christ. In fact, Jesus is the one that said, this isn't your home. And so in one sense, part of the realization of your Christianity is the realization that I'm not entirely home here. So that can bring comfort rather than fear. But how does Jesus make his home our home? How does Jesus make his home our home? What does it mean that Jesus is preparing, quote, preparing a place for us? Is he doing some last-minute tidying in heaven for us? Is he, is he kind of, you know, changing the sheets on our heavenly bedrooms? I don't think so. No, he's not. I can tell you that. He's not doing that. He's securing for us, a, uh, he's securing a place for us on the cross. In a sense, you could say he's preparing us for the place rather than preparing the place for us. This is why his return, this is where he's going. He's going to the Father, but we know he has to go via the cross. And on the cross, Jesus is preparing us to meet God. How is he doing this? On the cross, Jesus is taking our judgment for us. On the cross, he is giving us the righteousness that we need in order to live in the presence of God. And then by going to his Father in heaven, Jesus is pleading our case before the Father. Like a lawyer pleads, Jesus is pleading our case before the Father in heaven on our behalf. Jesus is representing us to the Father. He's saying, I know that Luke Harding is guilty, Father. This is is what Jesus is doing. He's saying, I know that Luke Harding is guilty, Father. 
I know that he's a sinner. I know that he deserves judgment. I know that he can't enter your beautifully holy and glorious and perfect presence in his sin. But Father, I took Luke's sin on myself. Father, your judgment came upon me. Luke's sin has been atoned for. That means it's been paid for. And not only that, I represent Luke here today as your only truly righteous son. You have counted his sin against me, and now, Father, count my righteousness upon him. That's what Jesus is doing presently for the Christian. That's how he's preparing a place for us. Jesus must prepare a place for us, friends, because guilty sinners, guilty sinners don't enter God's presence on their own. They must come with someone who has paid for their punishment, and they must come with someone who provides righteousness in their behalf. So tell me, who, who can do that? Who can come with you to heaven, providing your penalty, paying for your penalty, and providing you with righteousness? Can, can Gandhi do that for you? Can Muhammad do that for you? Can Mother Teresa do that for you? No one in the world can do that for you except for Jesus. In verse 4, Jesus says something fairly bold to his disciples. It kind of surprises me. You know the way to the place where I'm going. You know, they're distressed. He's leaving us. And now he just goes, you know the way. And the disciples just do not get what he's saying. And Thomas interjects in verse 5. We don't know where you're going. How in the world can we, if we don't know where you're going, how in the world can we know the way, Jesus? It's like they think that Jesus is talking about geography. It just goes right over their heads. And then Jesus answers with these famous words in verse 6. Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's saying, you know me. You know the way because you know me. I am the way to the Father. You don't find salvation by following a map or some set of instructions. You find salvation by, you find fellowship with the Father by embracing the one who has secured a place for you with the Father. Embracing Jesus as your King and as your Savior is the only way to have fellowship with God. Okay, I have three questions from the text in John 14, 6. Where does Jesus bring us? This is an important question because it tells us what salvation is. In Christianity, salvation is fellowship with God. Salvation is a restored relationship with God. This is really important because there's many other religious claims around the world that offer you salvation that looks a lot different from the salvation we're talking about in Christianity. We don't yearn for heaven as Christians simply because, simply because it's a place without pain or displeasure. We don't yearn for heaven simply because it has incredible architecture and extravagance. Salvation is fundamentally living in God's presence and communing with the God of the universe. 
It's enjoying his good favor. It's enjoying communion with the one we were created to commune with. And that's why God's got to transform our hearts before we get to heaven. Because if you don't love God, you're going to hate heaven. Friends, we don't love heaven because we get lots of things. We long for heaven because we get God. If it's just about getting lots of things, walking gold streets, friends, you could have heaven without God. But you don't understand, we were created to only be satisfied in communion with God. It's why King David in the Psalms says, whom have I in heaven but you? No one, there's no one in heaven but you. If you're not there, there's no heaven. Second question, why is Jesus the way to God? Oh, sorry. I was on the wrong one. There it is. Why is Jesus the way to God? Why does Jesus have the ability to bring us to God? The answer is right there in verse 6. Okay, so Thomas asks, Jesus, or Thomas says, Jesus, we don't know the way. And so the answer he gives is the focus there of I am the way, I am the truth and the life. The focus is that I'm the way. And those last two phrases, the tr- I am the truth and the life, support why Jesus is the way. Jesus alone can bring us to God because Jesus alone is the truth of God and Jesus alone is the life of God. You can see it's like those pillars. Why is Jesus the way? Because he's the truth of God and because he is the life of God. What does it mean that Jesus is the truth? I don't think it can mean simply that he says true things. I mean, that would be true. But Jesus is saying something much bigger. He's saying, I am the true representation of God the Father. So in the first 12 chapters, that's why Jesus goes around doing these amazing miracles. What he's doing is he's showing that If you want to see God, see my power at work. I'm forgiving sins. I'm healing the sick. Restoring the blind. Later in chapter 14, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Do you want to encounter God? Look at Jesus. He's the only true representation of God. He's also the very life of God. And this isn't something we should quickly pass over. In the Bible... God is the uncreated creator. That's, what, that's how we encounter God, right? Genesis 1. We encounter a God who is the creator, who, who wasn't created. And, and um, when my child asks me, Daddy, where, where, does, where did God come from? I'll answer something like, God, God didn't come from, from anywhere. He was just there. Nothing is outside of God that made God. No force made God. No power made God. God was the beginning. There was nothing before him. He was just there. He's the beginning. He is the cause that, ca- that, that makes all other causes. He's the origin. He's the fountain of life. Because in him is life. God is by very definition, the being that brings life but was never brought into life. And then John just throws this bombshell on people in the fourth verse of this entire gospel, John 1-4. 
He says, in him, in Jesus, in, word, in, in the word, is life. He introduces Jesus like this so that we know he is like no other person. Jesus is the only human who has ever existed that is not dependent on something else for life because he has life in himself. And then in John 6, Jesus says something profound. He goes, I'm the bread of life. He who has come from heaven, that's me, has life in himself, and he shares his life with others. Jesus has life in himself, and he is a sharer of life. So let me ask you, who can live in the presence of God? Only those who share in Jesus' life. So why is Jesus the way to God? Because he is the truth of God and because he is the life of God. Third question, why is Jesus the only Savior? He says, no one can come to the Father except through me. Two reasons. Our problem is deep and personal. You know, some problems might have many solutions because they're not that important or they're not very personal. I can imagine if you, you know, stole money from me and I said, listen, in order to be reconciled, we need to, that's, that's a personal offense. You know, you stole my wallet maybe afterwards. It's a personal offense. I, I can imagine, you know, I'm saying, okay, well, you need to give that money back and then you, you need to promise that you won't do that again and we can be restored. But can you imagine that other person saying, well, only one way to be restored? What, what is that about? Why do you get to choose how I get to be restored? <laughs> of course, it's a personal offense. And our deep problem is that we have personally offended God. The human problem isn't simply that we have stumbled on the path of life. Okay? That's not our problem. It's not that we've just stumbled on this path. Our deepest problem isn't that we've just broken a few odd rules of the universe. We've rebelled from our creator. We have loved ourselves more than God. That means we've, cho- we've chosen ourselves as a God over God. We've loved evil more than good. We've worshipped things rather than the creator of those things. And even when we've chosen good, we've often chosen good because we have evil motives. Selfishness, greed, fear of man. Sin is not something we just do. It's something that's deeply rooted within us. But you know what? Sin actually isn't our greatest problem. I should say, it's not our final problem. God is. God is the problem for sinners. Listen, my home, you might be shocked when I say that. (laughs) My home is filled with sinners, four of them, soon to be five. And the biggest one is me, (laughs) both physically and, yeah, in many ways. There you go. No one comes into my house worried that they will be obliterated by my impeccable holiness and radiant righteousness. No one's worried about that. But friends, God is too holy to permit evil in his presence. He is too just to allow evil to go unpunished. If God slacks on his holiness, if he winks an eye and ignores 
justice, just ever so slightly, what kind of God do we have? A God who isn't perfect, a God who isn't perfectly just. Listen, God is bound by his nature. He is the one that is by definition perfect, righteous, radiant, holy, beautiful, perfectly just. He is bound by his nature to preserve his breathtaking glory and his radiant righteousness. And he will move heaven and earth to preserve that. And our sin threatens that. What that means is the real prob- our real problem is encountering that kind of God as a sinner. It puts sinners in the crosshairs of God's mission to obliterate evil. God is going to pulverize evil. And while that is beautifully good, that puts evil people, which is everyone, at the crosshairs of that wrath. We need to be saved from God. Secondly, dramatic pause. Thank you. Only God can save us from God. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Jesus Christ. The beauty of the God of the Bible is that God is one being in three persons. And what that means is that the Father can serve as a just judge of the universe, and yet in his compassion, the Father can send the Son of God to mediate on our behalf. Jesus is the only mediator. He's the only go-between between God and us because he is the only true representation of God and he is the only one that is also a true representation of humanity. He's fully God and fully man. Only the Son of God will remain pure of sin. Only the Son of God can be a sinless sacrifice. Only the Son of God can offer his perfect life and perfect obedience. Only the Son of God can represent us before the Father. Only the Son of God can plead our case because he's a man who's experienced hardships and trials and temptations of life. Only the Son of God can defeat death and then rise again because he has life in himself. What other Savior could do that but Jesus? What other Savior could be the solution to our deepest problem? Friends, the world offers other saviors, but they won't save us from sin, and they won't bring us to God. Let's be clear about something. Our world isn't short of saviors. Of course, some have religious saviors. We we know some of those. Islam promises paradise filled with untold pleasures. That's salvation. For all those who obey Allah. Buddhism and other Eastern religions promise a state of nirvana, of release, or or some kind of purely spiritual existence disconnected from the evil of this physical world, a disembodied future. But you'd be wrong to think that only religious people have saviors. 
No, some people look to political saviors. If we just had the right policies or the right personality, then our society would be fixed. Others look to money to save them from their problems. For others, sex is their savior. For others, freedom is the savior. If I could just be free of restraints, then I'd have my proverbial heaven. But here's the problem with these saviors and all the other saviors that we're tempted to worship. None of them deal with our greatest problem in sin. Political policies are important, but they don't reach the heart of society. It's like putting a band-aid on a gaping wound. Money can be useful, but we know that greed is the root of all evil. (laughs) Sex is a beautiful gift, an ecstatic gift from God, and yet it becomes a weapon when used outside of the covenant of marriage. But there's still another problem. None of these saviors, not only do they not deal with your problem with sin, none of these saviors actually give you the salvation that is truly salvation. Allah promises no judgment and titillating, you know, pleasures. But there's no relationship with Allah. It's an impersonal relationship. Allah doesn't love you. You're not caught up into his love. Buddhism and Eastern religions offer a state of nirvana or a spiritual utopia, but it's totally disconnected from the world. There's no personal communion going on there. Only Jesus offers fellowship, communion with God. Only Jesus offers salvation that is sharing in the life and the love of God that's been going on from eternity. God created us to find joy in him. And friends, we will never find deep, lasting satisfaction that doesn't fade away until we commune with God. Only Jesus is the one that saves you to God. So I'm going to end with my main point. I don't usually live I don't usually leave my main point for the last words of the sent- of of the sermon. But here it is. Abandon all other saviors. Because Jesus is the only one. Let's pray.